Hey, it's Andy. Every teen has their stuff they don't tell their parents about, not because they lack trust, but because they're trying to work it out on their own. As much as we wish we could be their go-to for everything, the truth is we can't always provide the objective guidance they need during these crucial years. That's where our partner, Bonfire Digital Wellness, comes in. Imagine your teen having a compassionate coach with years of experience as a high school counselor checking in weekly to support your teen's social, emotional, and academic growth, from fostering healthy habits to managing screen time and much more. The best part? It's all 100% online. Visit BonfireDW today and take advantage of a one-month free trial. That's BonfireDW.org slash Talking to Teens. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Dr. Lisa Damore talking about what parents can do when teenagers get emotional. Dr. Damore has been recognized as a thought leader by the American Psychological Association. She co-hosts the Ask Lisa podcast, writes about adolescence for the New York Times, appears as a regular contributor to CBS News, works in collaboration with UNICEF, and maintains her own clinical practice. She is the author of two New York Times bestselling books, Untangled and Under Pressure. And her latest book is The Emotional Lives of Teenagers, Raising Connected, Capable, and Compassionate Adolescents. In today's episode, we are going to talk about hot versus cold cognition and how parents can leverage cold cognition to help teens make better decisions when hot cognition kicks in. We'll see why boys can be so nasty to girls starting in sixth grade. We'll dive into the topic of separation individuation, a word that sounds technical but actually explains a lot about the relationship between parents and teenagers. We're also going to cover a simple exercise that Dr. Damore has discovered or listening really effectively when our teenagers are venting about their day. We will see why teenagers are so likely to start important conversations with us when we're in bed. What's going on with listening to emotional music? Why we need to let teens express their emotions before we give them advice? And a strategy we can use to get themselves advice so that we don't even have to. All of that and much more is coming up on the show today. Dr. Damore, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I love being back with you. Oh, yes, this is exciting. When people ask me, you know, what are some of your favorite episodes? Our previous conversation is always one that I mentioned. So I don't know, something just always really sticks with me about that. So really excited to have you back on the show again, talking about your new book, The Emotional Lives of Teenagers. Well, I am so glad this book has finally made it into the world. I've been working on it for a while, and I hope it's useful. I hope parents and the adults who surround teenagers find it to be of help. 
So talk to me a little about where it came from or why did you feel like it was so important to now write a book, especially since, you know, your first two books kind of more focused on girls, problems that girls are going through, anxiety. And now really this book is just a lot more about teenagers in general, but really specifically focused on their emotions that they're going through during the teenage years and how we can kind of facilitate helping them through those. So I've always cared for boys in my practice and my writing for the times and my own podcast, the Ask Lisa podcast has always included boys in what we consider, but my, you're right. My book length work has been focused on girls and really Andy, it was the pandemic, right? That our concerns about teenagers just escalated as they should. And so I really felt like it was time to pivot to like all teenagers everywhere and try to be of use. So that was one reason that I wrote this book. It was very much inspired by how much teenagers suffered in the pandemic. But my goal is to go far beyond the pandemic with this book, because hopefully it's largely in our rearview mirror. But then the other thing that really inspired me to write the book is that I've been feeling for a while that the way we talk about mental health as a culture is not actually very accurate or very helpful for families. And what I mean by that is that an equation has emerged that or a view has emerged that equates being mentally healthy with feeling good or feeling calm or relaxed or happy. And that is actually not how psychologists have ever conceptualized mental health. So this book really aims to advance a more accurate and I think probably way more reassuring definition of what we're looking for in terms of mental health in anybody, especially a teenager, which is that it's having feelings that make sense in the moment. That are appropriate. Yes. Appropriate to what's happening, even if they're very upsetting feelings, and then handling those well, you know, handling those in a way that brings relief and does no harm. So it was like the two things together, like teenagers were suffering a lot and we weren't talking about mental health in a very accurate way. I love that. And you keep kind of coming back to that definition throughout the book. And really, it's something that I think really sticks with me from reading the book is just that idea of kind of always checking back with yourself on, okay, is this emotion, does it make sense in the situation? And then is my teenager handling it in ways that are productive or healthy? Sounds simple, <laughs> hard in real life. So that's all I got to do. Okay, episode over. Thank you for... <laughs> You know, it's so scary to be a parent right now. And the headlines are so concerning about teenagers. And, you know, and I think it's very hard with these headlines to know what any one of them means for your particular kid. And so what I also really hope to give parents was a way to evaluate their kid's mental health and really to tell them what to be on the lookout for when to be concerned. You know, and when we want to be concerned, I mean, we're always concerned if our kid's in pain, but when we want to really, you know, consider the possibility that intervention is necessary is if a teenager's mood gets to a concerning place and stays there, right? We expect to see moods go up and down in teenagers, but we don't expect to stay down. Or if a teenager is handling emotions in a way that is problematic, that may bring relief, but come at a cost, right? They're smoking marijuana, they're tearing at the fabric of relationships, they're being hard on themselves. That's when we want to step in and worry. But the presence of distress in a teenager is not in and of itself grounds for concern. It can even be evidence of mental health. 
But then so a caveat to that is that some things you point out in the book are that sometimes, especially as this period of brain development is really happening 12, 13, 14 years old, there is actually normal to have some emotions that maybe don't seem to make sense in the situation, or kind of really like alarming thoughts or kind of losing control of emotions in different ways. So how do we kind of reconcile that? That's a great observation. It's funny to like write a book and then have people like notice things. So I guess what I would say is, my aim in teaching parents about those normal aspects of adolescent development, that 13-year-olds are going to have extremely exaggerated emotions at times, that 14 and 15-year-olds will sometimes have existential crises that come out of nowhere. I think we can still tuck it under the idea that these make sense because we have developmental explanations for why these occur, right? That you know, if your 13-year-old is having a meltdown over not being able to find the right pants, it can seem like it doesn't make sense. But if they're 13, we know that neurologically things can get pretty amplified for them. So I think that was my goal. In some ways, what somebody had said to me is like, oh, the book is like, what to expect when you're expecting a teenager? And I'm like, (laughs) there's so much disruption that we actually see, see as typical, you know, normative. And so if parents can know that their 13 year olds are going to have very powerful reactions, what I hope is that parents can feel less frightened when it occurs. Yeah. And it seems like that is something that happens to you a lot, at least from what you're writing about in the book, where parents are asking you, hey, I have this thing going on in our household. And is this normal? Should I be concerned? And a lot of times you can reassure them that, well, actually, pretty normal. (laughs) And here's how you might kind of deal with it or put some coping strategies into place. Yep. That's the goal, right? I mean, for a lot of families, this is their first teenager, or their first post pandemic teenager. And, you know, I think the nice thing I've been practicing for almost 30 years. So like I've seen a lot of teenagers. So like, I think the aim of a book like this is to help parents put things in broad context, offer reassurance. And I think the best way to offer reassurance is actually to tell people when to worry, right? To really say like, I'll tell you what the line is. And I think when you know the line, you can actually then feel more at ease if you know you're not over that line. You talk in the book about hot versus cold cognition, and I thought that was really interesting. And you have kind of some strategies for helping teenagers when they're in a more calm and rational state to sort of think through or put strategies into place when the hot cognition kicks in. What does that mean or how does that look? So you can almost quite literally say that teenagers are of two minds. So there's their cold reasoning, which is basically their good, rational, thoughtful reasoning. And this is the reasoning they do when they're not in socially and emotionally charged situations. It's as good as any adult reasoning. And then there's what we call hot reasoning, which is their less rational reasoning, less probably safe reasoning. And that is what they do when they're in socially and emotionally charged situations. So what this looks like on a Friday night is at 5 p.m., you say to your kid in your kitchen, look, I know you're going to this party. I think you and I both know there's gonna be drinking at this party, I don't want you to drink. And at 5 p.m. in the cold light of day, right, your teenager really means it when they're like, yeah, I'm not going to drink. Like, I, you know, I got a game tomorrow or like, I hear you or I'm just, it's not going to happen. And the kid's telling the God's honest truth. Like, I mean, I really, I think we have to acknowledge that. That same kid at 10 o'clock gets to the party and now they're into hot cognition conditions. It is socially loaded. It is emotionally charged. And turns out the person they have a crush on is at the party. And then it turns out the person they have a crush on, I said, oh, 
much? I have one beer. And that same kid's like, okay. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> Great. <laughs> and it's not that they're relying. It's that they're now in a new condition that undermines their reasoning. This is terrifying, of course, to parents, right? Like, so we can have the conversation and it means nothing. Is, I think it's the worry. But what we want to recommend, re- remember, is that you have to plan for hot cognition conditions when you are in cold cognition conditions. So the rest of the five o'clock conversation is where the parent says like, okay, great, we're in agreement. Now say you get to the party and the kid you like is there and the kid you like is asking you to drink, what's the plan? And really talking that through because that's just the reality. And this will not perfectly guarantee any teen's safety, but what it will do is it means that they are not on the fly trying to figure out how to handle that situation, which is what we want to avoid whenever we can. Yeah, I resonate with that myself. Getting into sometimes hot cognition states of not doing things that I planned I was going to do or thought I was going to do, or yeah, it seemed like, yeah, all for sure. Uh, so I think that's so helpful to take the time to really think through like what strategies will you actually use when this gets hard? I think a lot of times, like even as adults, it's like things seem like a good idea, you know, when you're just kind of thinking about it in the abstract. It's like, yeah, being sober, that seems totally, that's what I should do. But yeah, just getting into the moment is really different. Something that really stood out to me in the book is you say that when it comes to managing emotional distress, boys are more likely to turn to distraction and girls are more likely to turn to discussion. What do you mean by that? So this is what we find in the research. And of course, you know, big, broad research findings will never apply perfectly to any one kid. But when we look, you know, in those kind of broad stroke ways, we see this and This is a pretty good distillation of how we socialize boys versus girls to manage emotion. That when boys are in distress, we have all this evidence that parents will try to like talk them out of it, tell them to shake it off, tell them to go think about something else. So they learn to use distraction as a strategy for getting feelings under control. Not a terrible strategy, but we don't want to use one strategy all the time. Whereas girls are socialized to talk about feelings and to use an elaborate vocabulary for feelings. And so when girls are distressed, they're much more likely to talk about what they're experiencing. And the thing that happens, Andy, that's so interesting is that, you know, kids end up hanging out in same-sex groups and actually amplifying patterns for each other. So you know, a boy who might be inclined to distract about emotions gets with a bunch of other boys. And when they're upset, they all distract about emotion and it sort of entrenches this approach. And similarly with girls, where a girl who may be inclined to discuss her feelings may find a very, you know, talented and ready audience for that in other girls who are also have been socialized to talk about feelings. So what can be small gender differences that are created in the culture or small gender differences that may be slightly, you know, worked out at home can quickly amplify once kids get out into the world. And you point out also that kids are much more likely to hang out in same-sex groups as they get into middle school and stuff, which tends to kind of further just channel them into those echo chambers a little bit or something. What I thought was interesting is how you then draw the parallel from that to internalizing versus externalizing disorders in boys and girls. Yeah, so 
you know, there's a whole chapter on gender and emotion in this book, which was fun and important to write, right? Especially because my work has focused on girls so much. I really wanted to lay out what we know about gender in general. And, you know, there are some kind of cardinal rules in psychology, things that we just know to be consistently pretty true and pretty good explanations for behavior. And one of the rules that we have long observed, and we see these data repeated over and over, is that girls in distress tend to collapse in on themselves. Boys in distress tend to act out, right? So girls are, who are distressed are more likely to show up with depression and anxiety, and boys who are distressed are more likely to get themselves in trouble or, you know, take it out on other people. And so what we want to appreciate is it's all distress, right? The, a boy who is getting himself in trouble is very much suffering, but that we have sort of gendered patterns of how distress gets channeled. Yeah. And it makes just a lot of things that I witnessed in my own adolescence seem to make so much more sense where it's like for boys feeling like, well, well, I can't really like talk about this or open up about what I'm feeling. And so I think it's why there were just so likely to see kind of just doing stupid things. And like, what can I do to just distract myself? That's kind of exciting that will get my mind off what I'm like, the suffering that I'm going through. And, you know, there's not that many options around as a teenager. <laughs> so, yeah. Not, right? And then, you know, another option is, you know, we think about, you know, ways in which you can make emotions die down. So one is distraction. Another is smoking a lot of marijuana, right? Like that will do the job. And so we really need to recognize that what we often see is, you know, a substance problem is a substance problem, but what is often underneath it is a wish to not feel emotional pain and, you know, kind of a lack of a repertoire for handling it in a better way. Halfway through our chat, I want to remind you about the power of Bonfire Digital Wellness. Is your teen struggling with digital balance? Bonfire DW's coaching is designed to guide them towards academic success, stronger relationships, and effective screen management. It's about fostering resilience and healthy habits in a digital age. Give your teen the edge they need. Take advantage of a one-month free trial at bonfiredw.org slash talking to teens. Let's help your teen shine with Bonfire DW. You also talk about meanness between boys and girls and especially hitting the tween phase and starting to see these like these differences emerge in onset of puberty where girls are more precocious and hitting a lot of these milestones earlier and leaving boys kind of trailing behind, which then leads to as we're talking about these externalizing kind of behaviors to like lash out in mean ways and kind of bully girls. And I wonder what you think we can do as parents of boys or girls to address that. So this was a really interesting section of the book, because this is something I started to observe, which is, well, we've known for a long time that sexual harassment starts by sixth or seventh grade, which is much earlier than people tend to recognize. And we've also known for a long time that in sixth and seventh grade, because of the timing of puberty, girls are roughly two years ahead of boys on the timing of puberty. A lot of sixth and seventh grade girls are going to be well underway with puberty before boys are. And 
This has pretty significant implications in a lot of ways. So number one is there are neurological benefits that come with being in puberty, that your mind gets upgraded, you can think in more sophisticated ways. So we've known for a long time that girls as a group, of course, this does not apply to every kid everywhere, but girls as a group are out outmatching boys in the classroom. They're able to think in more sophisticated ways. They're able to apply themselves in very, you know, and we see it in their grades. I mean, we have tons of data showing this to be true. On top of that, your average sixth or seventh grade girl is likely to be taller, stronger, and faster than. So when I was working on this book, I was talking to this, I think it was a seventh grade boy. He's like, okay, in the whole wide world, there's nothing worse than getting beat by a girl. And I was like, okay, as they're consolidating a sense of masculinity. And so I'm picturing the seventh grade. All right. So the boys are getting beat at recess by these girls. And then they turn around and they go back to class and they're getting beat in class by these girls. And I think I could have just really summarized the section as calling it like, it's really hard to be a sixth grade boy. right? <laughs> <laughs> you're like, you're trying to figure out what it means to be a man, right? If you're like, trying to figure that out. At the exact moment that the girls are getting you coming and going because of just the, you know, this accident of biology. And I'll tell you, Andy, I, I was like, I think this is why sexual harassment starts because it doesn't feel good for boys. Like all of it, not all boys are going to handle that well. And if you want to take a girl down a few pegs, all you got to do is comment on her body or say something lewd, which of course is like made that much easier by the fact that the girls are further along in puberty. And but I'll tell you, I was like, how has nobody connected these dots before? <laughs> like, how? And so I don't know if you noticed the note for that in the back of the book. It goes on for like two pages. I'm like, I couldn't find anyone else saying this before me. Maybe somebody else did. Please tell me if you, <laughs> here's all my data. Here are the numbers I'm looking at. But I think the bottom line is that we need to think very seriously about the self-esteem of sixth and seventh grade boys because it's hard to feel good about yourself as a sixth and seventh grade boy unless you happen to have gotten early side of puberty, which some boys do. We have to think about like, how can they be helped to feel good about themselves so they do not go after the girls? Because then that's really bad for the girls. Like, I mean, it has all of these, you know, kind of downstream effects. Yeah, totally. I can add this think of how much of trash talk among young boys is based on you throw like a girl, you run like a girl, you're a sissy. And so then it's like, well, then we hit sixth grade and all of a sudden it's like, well, wait a minute, the yeah, girls run no. faster than me. <laughs> they throw farther than me. Yeah, no, it's just sort of remarkable. Like, you know, if you followed a sixth grade boy through the day, he is potentially subject to a great number of humiliations that we do not want him to take personally, and we want him to have ways to feel good about himself. But also, yeah, it's but you don't want a sense of self-esteem to be based on being better than girls at things anyways. <laughs> so it's like, you really don't. Don't you really worry, don't. in a couple of years, you'll get them again. Like, but I don't know. <laughs> but you don't want that. They do need to have something to feel good about. So they need to be doing service or they need to be cultivating a skill. You know, they need something they can control because they can't control the onset of puberty. And bluntly, they will feel better. I mean, like I think, and it's not better. I mean, I think some boys will feel better at the expense of girls, which isn't my favorite, but they'll feel better because they're just not getting, you know, kind of beat out everywhere they go and unable to do anything about it. You know, what's nice is usually by ninth grade, there's a more evenness in terms of skill set. And then... I mean, not that this is something that should be a grounds for feeling better. By ninth grade, the boys are not getting physically outmatched by the girls in the same way. So to the degree that, you know, a young man's self-esteem is hinging on that, 
he'll feel better, right? You could, how I feel about that is a completely different issue. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, in terms of being awful to girls, like, I would really rather not the boys be awful to girls. What is separation individuation? That is our highly technical term for why your 13-year-old can't stand how you chew, <laughs> is what that is. Uh-huh. So it's funny. So I have two daughters. I have two teenage daughters. And there are points in my own parenting where I'm like, oh, my goodness. Like, the theoretical language we have for this does not do justice to what this really It doesn't is. sound that bad. Separation individuation. Okay. Yeah, sure. And so separation individuation is when teenagers need to sort of separate from us, their parents, and develop a sense of being an individual. And the language I use in the book is like sort of build their own brand, right? Separate from us, they build their own brand. And this is a tricky process because they're still very meshed in family life. So what this means is, as they're trying to figure out what their new brand identity is going to be, anything that we do that does not fit with their vision of their emerging brand is annoying to them because we're still somehow reflect on them. So I think here about my friend who's getting ready to go to her son's eighth grade orientation and he's like, oh my God, you can't wear that. And so she's like, go in my closet, figure out what I'm wearing. Because but, <laughs> You tell me, what do you want me to wear? What do you want me to wear? Because this boy, you know, they were still so entwined that like whatever his mom was wearing, like, Felt like it looked bad for him. So, and it didn't fit with his view of himself. But then the flip of it is, as they're trying to become more individual and build their own brand, anything that we do that overlaps with their vision of their emerging self is also annoying. So I remember how this happened in my own house. I have liked Beyonce for a really long time. And I was in the kitchen. We, I had Beyonce on. I was sort of bopping as I was cooking. And my 13-year-old daughter, who had suddenly discovered and realized she liked Beyonce, came in and she was like, Mom, stop! It's my song! <laughs> the sum total of this is anything we do that is like their emerging sense of themselves is annoying. Anything that we do that is unlike their emerging sense of themselves is annoying. Everything we do is annoying to them. And it just happens that way for a while until they figure out their brands. And then they figure out their brands. And then they're like, you're, you know, you're a quirky brand. That's your problem, not my problem. Yeah. Yeah. Once they kind of really feel like they've individuated, then it's like, well, hey, yeah, my mom's weird. Or yeah, yeah, we both like Beyonce. Awesome. But like. What I didn't put in the book and something that's been clear to me, you know, there's always like you handed the manuscript and then it comes out a year later. So, you know, your thinking continues. There's points in development where kids get very anxious about their brands, like if you're like on college tours or something. And so I think that kind of like feeling easily antagonized by their parents' traits, I think it can recur at points in development when kids are very anxious about how they're being perceived, new settings or things like that. So it, I think it, height, it hits its height at 13 and then usually dissipates, but I think it pops up at various times. We're here today with Dr. Lisa Damore talking about what parents can do when teenagers get emotional. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. The music plays a pretty powerful role in what we call emotion regulation, kids' ability to manage feelings. 
And so it was very fun in this book to take a deep dive into how it shows up. And one of the things I lay out in the book is that there's really two categories of activity that kids use to manage feelings. Sometimes they're expressing feelings and sometimes they're working to bring the feelings back down to size. This is for when your kid is telling you a whole bunch of things they're upset about or telling you something that they're very upset about. And I don't think I'm alone in having the reaction of a parent where I kind of get an idea about what I might suggest and then I'm just waiting for my kid to pause so I can like jump in with my idea. Hey, here's what you do, yeah. <laughs> I think that's a very natural reaction. And it's funny, I was talking about this with my 12-year-old the other day and she said, I can tell from the look on your face when you've gotten the idea and when you're now waiting for me to stop. <laughs> I mean, this is the thing. Like, they've got us dead to rights. Busted. Yeah, so you don't want to do that. Like, you really want to try to listen. So I have to make, like, a game for myself about, like, how am I going to do this? Or, like, a strategy. Like, I need a way to do it. So the strategy I came up with is I pretend my kid's a reporter and I'm an editor, and they're reading me the article of their distress. And my job is to, at the end of the, when they come to the end of the article, to produce its headline, to say the words that summarize it, distill it, add nothing, but just like, here's the top line of what you've said. It is extremely common in homes with teenagers for parents to ask like all the right questions all through dinner all the, and get nothing. Crickets. Absolutely crickets. And then when they're in bed and about to try to go to sleep, there's the teenager. <laughs> when I say this, I've since sort of started bringing this up when I'm giving talks. And like in an audience of 300, like everybody goes, oh, like it's a wildly universal phenomenon. So, you know, the best thing about being a psychologist is that functionally we're like anthropologists. Like our job is to be like, why does this happen? What is this about? And so what's very clear to me, this allows teenagers to actually satisfy competing masters in their lives. So on the one hand, teenagers want to be autonomous. That is the main organizing force for most teenagers. Like they want to be independent and increasingly so. And so when we're like, hey, tell me about school, right? We're basically calling them to a meeting, setting the time of the meeting and setting the agenda for the meeting. And so teenagers are like, nope, not on your terms. But they also really want to connect with their parents. Like teenagers really do. And so showing up, <laughs> you know, we're like trying to shut it down. Let's them do both because they are setting the agenda for the meeting. And here's what teenagers have told me, and this cracks me up so much. They're like, oh, my parents ask many fewer questions and do not bring up new topics at that time. And then if they want the meeting to end, they can be like, all right, guys, I'll let you sleep. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get access to all the interviews I've conducted, as well as new episodes weeks before the general public. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.